everyone, and welcome to the Path 11 podcast. This is part two of our interview with Thomas Campbell. Yeah, we pick up right where we left off with Tom. If you want to know more about Tom, please check the show notes and check out his website, mybigtoe.com. And Tom also has dozens and dozens of movies and videos on YouTube describing uh, his big toe and some of his workshops. And we're hoping to have him back on in the near future because Tom is also in the process of writing another book. I believe that the title is still in the works, um, so we won't give that away. But uh, it's more of a look at relationships between men and women. I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about the high entropy, low entropy, fear, love, and the probable future database, all in one question. Um, okay. Good <laughs> so, question. Yeah. So, um, you know, I kind of dabbled a little bit this year in um, the text A Course in Miracles, and it kind of goes in line, again, with basically moving all thoughts and just movement towards love instead of fear and how, mm-hmm. you know, love really can't exist or fear can't exist where love is and that you can't really be the servant. The mind can't be a servant to both fear and love at the same time. Now, um, I know like you were saying, the more love, the less entropy, the more fear, higher the entropy. And so, you know, I've come across some, I would say pretty cool human beings in, you know, the past couple of years. And one of the things that I notice is that people, these people who are kind of walking around in the world that really are carrying, I would say more love, um, actually a lot of love, uh, there's like no worry. They don't seem to have a whole lot of anxiety, really no fear. And I, I witness their kind of trust in this life or trust in that things will just unfold. There's really no agenda that they're having in life and they're really happy. And the way that things unfold around them, it almost seems like, oh my gosh, it's, you know, it just, things just happen for them. And then I started thinking, well, when you lower your entropy, is there less free will then? Because it doesn't even seem like these people are even consciously trying to direct or make any decisions about how their life goes. And they're just totally open to the unfolding of whoever comes their way, they'll speak to whatever uh, thing that they get invited to, they'll go and do. Or if somebody invites them to go travel, they'll go travel. And it doesn't even feel like or appear as if there's free will that's working. Um, And and but yet everything is kind of unfolding and very nicely sure. and they seem to have really cool lives and it's really inspiring to watch and see um so i i don't really know what i'm asking it's more of an observation <laughs> but i'm kind of as you were talking about high entropy and fear mm-hmm. i was almost thinking well you know do people exercise more of that free will in when they are more fear-based as opposed to people who really are in this flow of energy and trusting and loving and things are just what appears to be unfolding around them in that future probability, like all of these options that we could have, it seems like they're not really directing it, that the love and their attitude and just being is directing it. No, they, they are exercising free will. There's, there is, there is more choice there are more decisions. Your decision space is larger as you get rid of fear. They are just making the, they're making choices to, you know, to do these things. It's not that that they're just, uh, you know, kind of falling into things. They're choosing to do this. And somebody says, uh, "Would you come talk on this subject?" They choose to do it, 
And they choose to do it because they care. They want to share. If they've got information that other people might find useful, then they want to share it. So it's a, it's a choice that they do. If you ask them to, would you come uh, help me uh, you know, step on ants here on my sidewalk, or would you come and help me uh, you know, beat this person, they would say, no, they would, you know, they would not do it. They, do, they are exercising their free will. Everyone has free will, and everyone has complete and total free will. Most people, though, don't understand what free will is. Free will is the freedom to choose among the things, among the choices that you have. So let's say there's, a, there's, a, there's an event, there's, something's happened, some um, stimulus comes to you, and there's 10 ways that you could respond to that. Okay, then you have the free will choice to pick which one of those 10 ways you could respond to that. Let's say the thing that happened to you is that somebody said something really rude to you. Okay, now you've got a lot of, you've got 10 ways that you can respond to that. One of them is to get angry. One of them is to, you know, slug them. One is to cry and run away. One of them, you know, you just go on and on, all the different ways you can respond to that. And Another way to respond to it would be to wonder why this person feels that, that strongly and is there anything that you could maybe do to help them uh, see a bigger picture because they, they uh, seem to be in distress and upset and you start thinking about them and how it is you could maybe help them uh, be happier and see a bigger, a bigger uh, way, you see. So that would be the love way. That would be the caring way. Now... Out of those 10, we're free to pick. We can pick any of those ways. They're all possible for us to do. So we take responsibility for our choices. We don't say, oh, that person makes me angry. It's, I choose to be angry. And why do you choose to be angry? You choose to be angry because of your ego. And why do you have an ego? It's because of your fear. So you're acting out of fear when you get, when you get angry. So everyone has the free will to choose among the things that, that are in their, you know, that are in their uh, decision space. Now that person, let's say that, that um, had an insult hurled at them, somebody uh, insulted them, said something rude to them, uh, there may be a hundred ways that they could respond, but they only know of ten of them. You see, we don't even count the ways that they could respond that they don't know about. Their decision space, as I define decision space, is just those 10 things that they could do, that they could choose to do. There may be other things that they could do that uh, are not in their reality. So that's decision space. And people who are loving have a larger decision space because there's more choices they have of things that they could do. And they take the choice of the one that's caring, the one that helps other people. And when you do that, you're not struggling against the current of, of uh, evolution. You're swimming with it. So everything gets a lot easier. Life unfolds at your feet and gives you what you need as you need it. Things work out. Um, it's like this. Uh, I can summarize life in a, in a very short sentence, and that is stuff happens and we get to deal with it. That's what life is. It's a series of stuff happening, and we get to deal with it. 
Now, most everybody puts their focus on the stuff that's happening. Everybody tries to make sure that that stuff that happens is the stuff they want to happen. It's all about making that the life that you want go your way, the stuff that happens. So you want your spouse to do those things that are the way you would like them to do them. You want your children to grow up and be the way you'd like them to grow up and be. You'd like, uh, you know, anything. You try to manipulate, you try to arrange so that it comes out in the way you think is best or the way you want it to come out. That's the wrong emphasis. That's struggling. That's you trying to make life suit you. If, on the other hand, it's not about you, see, that's, that's it's all about you. If it's not about you, if it's about other people, then you just let the stuff happen that happens because you're not in charge of all those other people. You can't control them. You have no desire to manipulate them. You know they just have to be who they are. You want them to be just authentic people who they are. And as that stuff happens, you get to deal with it. And you get to deal with it with your free will. So you get to choose how you react, how you interact, the things you say, where you go, what you do. And as you see it being a positive thing that's helpful, then you go do it. And you do it with love and with caring. You don't do it like, yeah, I guess I got to go do this. You do it because you want to, because it is a good thing. And when you live like that, everything just works out fine. Because why are people upset? Because what happens isn't what they want. It's, oh no, that happened. Oh no, this person doesn't like me. They were rude. Oh no. You know, and things aren't happening the way they want. And they are frustrated with that. And they want to control them. They get upset because of it. If you are of the mind that whatever happens is just fine. I'll deal with it. And I'll learn from it. I'll grow from it. I'll, I'll give my love to it the best I can. And where it's something that I just have to deal with, I'll deal, I'll deal with it positively. And it'll just be. So see, it's not about, it's not about me. It's about them. It's about what can I contribute instead of what can I get and how can I keep it? It's what can I give and how can I be helpful? And when you are helpful, you find that everything is just fine because everything is an opportunity to interact with caring and with love. Everything's a lesson that, that uh, you can learn from. You don't see things as, as uh, oh no, that's not what I wanted. That's not the way it should, should be. Those people shouldn't act like that. You see? So these people are happy. And you notice that their lives are happy. Their relationships are happy. Uh, good things just happen to them. And people on the other end that are always trying to manipulate everything to be the way they want, they're frustrated. Because you can't manipulate everything to be the way you want. So you're constantly grinding your teeth. You're constantly wringing your hands. You're constantly frustrated because it's just not working right. These people just aren't the way they need to be. And uh, you're constantly unhappy. You're constantly miserable. Uh, everything is about you. So things even that aren't negative towards you, you interpret them that way anyway. So your life is unhappy and miserable and you struggle trying to, you know, it's, it's like the people are trying to put too many clothes in a suitcase you see one arm hanging out on this side, so you crack the suitcase and try to put it in, and as you do that, something else pops out on the other side. You see, it's, it's one of those things that uh, you just can't win when it's all about you. Everything will all, you will always be frustrated because you don't control the world. You don't control other people.
So that's the difference. It's, uh, it's not a, a problem that people who are loving have less free will. They have the same free will that everybody has. They have a larger decision space, a larger set of, of decisions that they can make. And uh, they're just happy. It works. They're going with the flow. They're, they're growing up, becoming love. And uh, if you're unhappy with your life, anybody who feels that there's negativity, things that they, they don't like, things that upset them, that's because they have ego that derives from fear. If they get rid of the fears, they won't be unhappy. Everything will work just fine for them. It's just fine by definition. Even if something really bad happens, you know, a child dies or your parents die or you, you get, you know, a truck runs over your foot or something, even if those things happen, you deal with them. They're opportunities to grow. It's like uh, actor uh, Reeves, who was played Superman. Uh, he fell off a horse, I think, broke a spine right at the third or fourth cervical vertebrae and was paralyzed from the neck down. Well, he had a choice. He could be full of self-pity or he could accept that and learn the lessons that it might teach. He took the, he took the high road. He, he did that. So we have choices. Just because you know, something uh, rough happens doesn't mean that those people then start moping and say, ah, you used to be happy, but now I'll look at you. Well, if you look at people who deal with things well, they're still happy. They're still going to learn. It's not about impressing your will on the world, it's about what can you give to the world to help it along. Great, thank you. So that's almost like uh, kind of like the law of attraction a little bit? Or well, it's kind the of law, like- yeah, the law of attraction actually is not a law, and it's not that the universe uh, you know, uh, meets your needs. It's that your intent modifies future probability. So if you have intents, then the probability will shift in order to materialize that intent. But you see, it works for every intent. So if your intents are very fearful, you will, you know, the, the future will adjust itself to deliver to you what you fear, because that's the intention. Your intentions are fear-based. So it, it works both ways. Now, if you think you want to make the world, you know, what's uh, Janis Joplin saying that song, Dear Lord, please give me a new Mercedes Benz. <laughs> if, if what you're trying to get from the world is, uh, you know, is, is a new Mercedes-Benz and that's going to uh, puff up your ego and, and uh, make you feel uh, really clever that you uh, somehow beat the game, then you're asking the larger conscious system to do things that are self-defeating. You're creating more ego. You're creating more negativity. So the, the larger conscious system is likely to snuff that uh, idea, uh, although it doesn't necessarily monitor everything that's going on, but you can't ask the system to constantly work against itself. It won't do that. It'll end up teaching you a lesson if you do that. Uh, beware of what you ask for. You know, It may come in a way that you regret. So yes, it works though. You can uh, modify future probability with intent. Okay. I also wanted to go into a little bit about out of body uh, stuff. I know that's how you got started a little bit at Monroe. Um, actually, we should probably call it out of avatar or something. Yeah, <laughs> out of mind maybe. But yeah. that has other connotations. And when we talked last. You you kind of described how you didn't really describe. Well, yeah, you did. How there's multiple or thousands and countless thousands of uh, non-physical realities. 
do you still go to these non or other realities? These other yeah, as needed. Yeah, I deal okay. in other reality frames, and and you know all realities are virtual. Okay, it's not you know people have this idea that uh, you know when I die, you know then I'll see the real thing. You know I won't be in this uh, illusionary world anymore. I'll be in the real world. Well, no, you go from one virtual reality to another virtual reality. If you if it's experiential, if you experience then you're in a virtual reality. You experience because there's rules. There's a rule set. There's context. With no rules, then there's no way to interpret anything. There's nothing, there's no consistency. There's, there's, um, you know, without rules, you have randomness. So you, you uh, are in a reality where you can experience, you're in a virtual reality. Consciousness is the only thing that's fundamental and Everything else is virtual, and every reality that's experiential in which you can experience is a virtual reality. So yes, there's lots of virtual realities, and as, as needed, I visit all of them. I don't spend as much time just exploring as I used to because you know, I've done that, kind of been there and done that, got the information I needed, and just repetitiously you know, doing it is not as interesting as other things that I could do with my time. So I, I don't do the, I want to, you know, like the, uh, the bear went over the mountain, right, to see what he could see. You know, you just, just go to see what you can see. Um, I spent enough years doing that that that's not a big interest of mine. But yes, I, I work in the non-physical. I live in the non-physical um, every day. Eventually, your reality just grows to the point that this physical reality is only a part of the reality that you live in. So it's not a matter of, you know, do you, medit do you still meditate? And the answer to that is no, I don't do formal meditation, but yes, I meditate all day long, every day. I'm always in that kind of a, a state. So it's, it's a little hard to describe, but your, your reality gets bigger as your... Um, you know, as you become love or as you grow up, as you uh, see bigger pictures, then you get to live in a bigger picture. So I live in the non-physical and the physical daily, all the time together. So I'm always in a, I'm always in a uh, meditation state. Um, I don't know, Just, a little difficult to explain. I don't know whether <laughs> you're getting that or not, but yeah. uh, the answer is yes, I'm still connected uh, with those things and I still use them but not just uh, to see what I can see anymore. That's more, if I, if I continued to do that, it would almost be more entertainment because I've seen all of what uh, was required of me to see to come up with a theory of consciousness and turned out to be a theory of uh, reality and a theory of physics as well. So some people then might ask, well, well what are you doing, Tom? Where are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. what, what, what are you spending your time doing in the non-physical and the physical at the well, same time? Well, it's, it's like this. Um, people who, uh, let's say, you know, I, I'm here, like everybody else is here, to deal with what happens. Okay? And I gave up long ago trying to make it happen the way I want. So stuff just happens, and I deal with it. And that's why I'm here to make choices. So I do that. And in, in order to do that better, in order to make choices that are more helpful, I have to have 
more information than I would if I were just here. So let's say I'm lecturing. I'm standing up and, and I'm giving a lecture and it's time for questions and somebody asks a question. I will tap into that person, into their intent. What exactly is this question that they're getting at? Because oftentimes the words that somebody says aren't really that expressive of the need that's behind those words. They're trying to put it into words and often that's difficult or it's, it's, uh, they're trying to avoid maybe saying things in public that they would just as soon say in private. So I get that information and then that lets me answer their question in a way that's most meaningful for them. So I'm attuned with them, who they are, where that question's coming from so that I can answer that. I do the same when you ask me a question in this interview. You get a question, I have to get the bigger picture of your audience and the people who might be listening to this, what I can say that they will understand and what I can say that you will understand and try to understand the, the kind of the question behind the question. What, what, is, what, is, uh, what is it that you're getting at? What is it's causing the confusion? And then answer that. And part of that's why my answers are so long, I guess, because you, know, you can't ask Tom Campbell you know, a question and get a short answer because I... I have this sense of the depth of what it is you need to know that satisfies the question that you're asking, not just to answer directly just the question and then, and then nothing else. So I do that all the time. Somebody, somebody talks to me about uh, their, you know, their mother or their spouse or somebody having a hard time doing something or uh, having an illness or something. I'm already looking at that individual uh, assessing their illness, their state of mind, and what I might be able to do to help while I'm still in conversation with that person. So you see, it just depends on what's going on. But at the same time, I don't try to manipulate my life at all, because that would interfere with what I'm here to do, which is just interact. You see, I, if I start manipulating things to be the way I want them, then I'm living in a false world of my own making rather than the real world that uh, challenges me. So I don't, I don't, it's not a matter of manipulating things. It's a matter of just take, getting the information you need to be of much of service as you possibly can in the situation that's in front of you at the moment. Okay. And so you, you've been able to tap into and uh, past lives and, in your books, in your lectures, you call them experience packets. Um, yes, I, I try to avoid some of the nomenclature that comes with baggage. You know, people have an emotional connection. If you talk about uh, reincarnation, then there's a certain number of people who will bristle immediately at that and others who will immediately, uh, you know, grab onto it based on their own, turn, on their own sense of it. So I like to introduce ideas. And instead of reincarnation, I talk about an experience packet that way people get to think about it kind of without the, without the emotional baggage that might come with it. It's a, kind of a, it's a new concept and a new term, and they can think about it that way and don't have to be uh, either pro or con because of past experience. So, yeah, experience packets. I do that with a lot of, a lot of my words. I, I, only, uh, I try not to use loaded words. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go on. No, that's right. And uh, w with... Knowing your previous experience packets, did you, in those experiences, did, were you aware of the bigger picture like you are now in this 
that pack it? Uh, yeah, to some extent, not exactly in the same way, but uh, the last uh, three, at least three or four of my experience packets uh, have been preparation for this one. And it may, of course, turn out that this one's preparation for another one as well. But uh, I've been working uh, basically in the same field and getting myself ready for the things that I do uh, through many lifetimes. That's, so I, I was uh, involved in uh, understanding and being a part of the larger consciousness system, yes, several lifetimes back before I got to this one. So it is not a, a new thing for me here or something that I've, I've not done before. Now, is this something that um, that someone would choose for themselves, or are, is this like your roles as a physicist, like um, gaining knowledge of the bigger picture? Is that something that's put upon you by another entity of some sort? Okay. Well, for most people, it's it just is what happens. It's it's their choice. It all falls okay. out of their own free will choice. That's the that's the typical answer for probably you know, 98, 99% of the population. There are sometimes people who are, have, have a plan. They come back with something they need to do. They come back with, a, with a, uh, a fairly scripted set of goals for what they would like to accomplish. So they come with a plan and they execute that plan and the larger consciousness system is probably a part of that plan as well. And, you know, that happens sometimes. It's not, like I say, it's not the rule. It's, it's, it's in the margins. But for me, uh, I came with a plan. And there were things that I needed to do, things I needed to learn. For example, my other uh, incarnations where I say I was, re I was preparing, and I said incarnations here because I, I think that we've already been over the, the similarity <laughs> there. Um, I was not working at it from the scientific side. It was mostly from the experiential side. Um, and when I was, was uh, a young person here in this lifetime, I was very right-brained. I could intuit things. I um, worked with my mind. I modified, uh, you know, I, I was five or six years old and I was actively, uh, you know, modifying future probability with my intent. I already knew how all that worked. So I was a very right brain person. And I realized that what I needed to do this time was to develop my logical process side, my left brain, that that was important, that was necessary. So though mathematics was very difficult for me because mathematics is a logical process, not an intuitive process. I knew I had to learn that. So I reason I went into physics as opposed to any other field was because physics was the most difficult thing that I'd ever done. It was the most challenging thing. And because I had an intuitive sense, that is what I needed to do. So my, my uh, experience coming very, uh, you know, where math became easy for me and where I understood it and the physics uh, I understood. I got to that through a lot of struggle. I had to learn to become a left brain logical processor 
and work in that world. But I didn't give up my right brain uh, sense either. So I would describe myself as very extremely right brain and very extremely left brain, both at the same time. It's, um, it's what I had to do this time. So that's just a little bit of an example. So yes, I did come in with a, with a plan in mind and I, I was uh, executing a plan and I am not the only person that uh, was involved in making the plan. But that is not typical and uh, not true for most people. And so growing up and you're, you, you come in to, to learn math. So when you're young, you kind of there was kind of markers set in place that kind of attract you to, say, to take a certain class or. Yes, uh, I was I was very uh, interested in how things worked. You know, I was one of these kids that took everything apart and then put it back together again several times. I, I wanted to know how everything worked and uh, I wanted to understand it. So that just was imbued in my my being when I, when I got here, I was like that, you know, at, at two or three years old, I was taking things apart, you know, and, and seeing how they worked. I had a drive to understand everything from the logical process point of view. So I was just oriented that way. So I knew very early that I was going to go into some form of science. I just wasn't very, uh, um, prepared for it from a viewpoint of the way I thought my mind didn't work that way. So I had to train it to work that way. Now, most people, I think, would tend to go in some place that they are naturally fitted for. You know, I was not naturally fit for, for, uh, for being uh, you know, a scientist, but I became one in this lifetime. And eventually, it became natural. I could, uh, you know, it was not a struggle. I struggled until the point that I got it. And once I got it, then uh, it, was, uh, it was easy as well. Now, have you looked into your future uh, experience packets at all, or is that something you try and stay away from? Uh, I don't do that much. If there's a need to, sometimes I can look ahead. But basically, what I tell people, they'll, you know, I, what you need to know about the future is absolutely nothing. If you start looking into the future, what you do is now you're not, now you're playing a kind of a, a fake game. You're no longer just reacting to things. You, you anticipate everything. So you're working more out of your head and less out of your being level. And it, it just gets in the way of dealing with things as they come. Besides, it really doesn't, you know, I don't feel like I need to control anything. Things just happen. And however they happen, that's good with me. I just deal with them. And I don't have a lot of interest particularly in what happens, my focus is on how do I deal with that most effectively. So I don't care a whole lot about the future. I'll be where I need to be. What happens will happen, and I'll just try to make the most of what I got, of, you know, of the cards that are dealt. So that's kind of the attitude. So I don't go into future looking around, except sometimes you need to. Like if you're going to help somebody, sometimes you need to see a little bit about what's going on and where they're headed to be most effective in your helping where they are now. So I do do that some in the margins, but it's usually not about me, and it's usually just little dabs and bits here and there as I need to. Same within going into the past, you know, delving into the past databases and seeing all the lifetimes you've had and what you did and, 
and that sort of thing. It's just not all that interesting. I just live in the present moment and deal with what happens in the best way I can, and that's really all I need to do. The rest of it is just would be ego, like entertainment. Go find out, because wouldn't that be neat? And uh, I don't really deal with neat so much. I just deal with what is. I was just watching uh, earlier, well, yesterday and early this morning, this interview that you just did with, um, it's not Wendell, it's Wenzel or? Yeah, Wenzel, I guess. Wenzel, yeah. On, yeah. I think you posted on your YouTube page. Yes. It, I, I'm about halfway through it, and you just started getting into uh, the politics and the non-physical. And that kind of reminds me of... Uh, one of the things we asked you way back in 2008, or actually, I don't know if we, it kind of came up after a question or something about how this virtual reality frame that we're in is kind of, there's like a committee that organizes it, or there's um, not a committee, but there's like somebody in charge. Yeah. And you had said that that person was just replaced not that long ago. Yeah, back in 2008. Yeah, that was probably okay. the case. How important is that person? And wh- why was this? Why do you need them? And what do they do? Yeah. <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, in the books, that's the, that's the title of the, of the person I called the Big Cheese. And the oh, reason right, I gave right. them that name, the Big Cheese, is because I don't want people to take it too seriously. I don't want them to get too wound up in it. So I try to put a little tongue-in-cheek humor in it so that people will not uh, get too wound up over this role of the big cheese. But whenever you have a complex structure uh, that's particularly a social structure as consciousness is, you have to have rules. You have to have some structure in it. Um, you can't just let anything you know, happen. It can't be chaotic or... Um, uh, you know, you can't just let anything happen that, that wants to happen. You have a schoolhouse here. So our virtual reality is a, is a, uh, it's a simulation. It's an entropy reduction trainer. It's a schoolhouse for us to go in and, and learn how to grow up and become love. So one of the rules that you have then is that other entities, other individuated units of consciousness that are not participating in this schoolhouse just can't come in and, you know, run through the halls and disrupt the classes and, you know, the, you know, beat up the kindergarten kids and steal their lunch. You know, you, you have to have rules in order to have your schoolhouse have integrity that says that, uh, you know, the people in the neighborhood just can't come walking through the school anytime and, uh, and uh, create disturbances. So that's one of the rules. And if you have a rule, you need somebody to enforce it, somebody to decide how you know, how the rule gets configured, how strict is it, how, uh, you know, who gets eliminated from running through the schoolhouse, uh, are there times when, when that's okay. So you have, you have these kinds of rules that need to be made and then need to be enforced. So you have to have some sort of management structure involved. Also, you have to have management structure looking at the schoolhouse and saying, is the school effective? Are we, are we getting as much out of it as we can? Uh, are there policy changes we could, we could make that would uh, make it a better school and people would, ha- would learn more easily? Or you know, are we doing all we can do? The different, a different curriculum, you know, they, they have to be doing that as well. So 
that's what I talk about when I talk about the structure. And as any group of, of uh, or when any, whenever you have two individuated units of consciousness, you probably have two uh, individuals that don't agree on everything because how we interpret the data has to do with our own history, where we've come from, you know, our beliefs, our knowledge, our fears, all the things that are in there are individual. So you expect individuals to, to uh, come to different conclusions, even looking at the same data. And our evolution ha is, is according to free will. So we are supposed to evolve positively and become love, move toward love, move away from fear. But there's free will. So you can make bad choices. It's not free will if you can say, you know, you're free to make any choice you want as long as it's one I approve of. You know, that's not free will. They have to be able to make any choice. So we have some entities that are de-evolving, or you may say evolving on a negative path rather than a positive path. And these are the people we call, you know, disturbances, uh, evil. Uh, I guess in religion they're the demons or the or the devil or whatever. So it's the it's the entities that are de-evolving, moving toward fear, control, force, as opposed to those that are moving toward love, cooperation, caring, cooper you know, being being helpful. So if you have you have then the, the good versus evil struggle, the good versus evil dichotomy going on everywhere, not just in this virtual reality, but it's going on in the larger consciousness system as well. It's going on on other virtual realities. It's kind of the nature of things because we have free will. So that's why we need rules and we need some structure to deal with that. And even the people on the same side disagree with each other because they come from different backgrounds and environments and beliefs and so on. So yes, it is a, there is a political aspect to the larger consciousness system because it is a social system because it's made up of individuated units of consciousness and some have evolved positively a whole lot, some have evolved negative a whole lot, and most everybody else is somewhere in between that. So that's kind of the, the background of why we have it, what it is, and the particular uh, manager, if you will, of, the, of where our virtual reality, the, the uh, part of the larger conscious system where our virtual reality takes place, that's the one I call the big G's. And the big G's tries to be a very, uh, have a very light touch with his management. And there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of uh, levels to management. It's a very shallow organization in such that it's not like, uh, you know, vice presidents and then, uh, you know, division chiefs and then section heads. And, you know, it's not like that at all. It's pretty much just a level, um, the larger consciousness system, the big G's, um, and that's it. There's not a lot of structure beneath that. But anyway, there are arguments on how to best, uh, you know, make this virtual reality as effective as possible. And some people would say, you know, you need to do it more this way, and other entities would say you need to do it less that way and more this other way. And there's some struggle involved, and the big cheese is the one that makes final decisions. So that's kind of the, the idea. It's all about how to optimize the situation that we've got. Now, with the, the change of the, 
the big cheese in 2008 or so. Have Actually, you, it happened before that. Before when that. I told you that, I said it, it was in recent history. But as these things go, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years is kind of almost yesterday. You know, you're almost on, you know, we talk about geological time, uh, you know, where 100 years is not a whole lot of time as far as the geological changes on the earth. Well, in this consciousness time, you know, a decade is, is uh, yesterday. So it was, oh, okay. I can, I can, um, I could probably t- take a little while to pinpoint it closer than that, but it was probably in the uh, you know, 1990s or so, 1980s and 90s is when this took place, back in that time frame when the change took place. Okay. Uh, but in 2008, I'm still saying it was recent. Yeah. Th- these things don't change much. It's uh, you know, it very very stable system now with when the change happened was there any big policy change that we would have seen here in the physical or is it pretty much kept the same and no there was a policy change that uh, that we uh, would have seen here in the physical and that is that the the previous administration had more of a of a policy of hands off you know let things happen the way they happen let things be however they are. You don't step in and, and uh, you, know, you, you step in a, as little as possible. You know, just let the natural process work itself out. That was their idea. And what had happened under that policy was that the, you know, in the struggle of good versus evil, the, the positive side, the good side, Basically, would abide by by that. It wouldn't uh, it wouldn't intervene in things. It would let things it would let things happen, and um, they they abided by that rule. But the negative side, of course, the negative side cheats, lies, and steals because that's what the negative side does. So the negative side would kind of violate the. Uh, don't run uh, rampant through the schoolhouse and mess with the, with the children in class. So they would do that some. And as long as they didn't push it but so far, they were getting away with it because it was, well, that's no bad. We don't really want to interfere. Yeah, they're just like that, but that's okay. We can deal with that. The kids will find out what the rough side of life is, but they'll have to deal with that too. And it was that sort of thing. So the negative side had been growing stronger and stronger and more influential over many, many, many decades, probably, you know, over uh, many centuries, and had become almost unstoppable to the point that it was about to a tipping point where if it went much further, there would be really hard for the good to keep going. It was kind of tipped to the, to the, everything would slide to the negative. It would be out of balance. So as it got nearer to this out-of-balance phase, then changes were made. And that philosophy was gone, and we had another philosophy that said, yes, it's good to just let things be, but you also have to enforce the rules. They're there for a a purpose, and we're not going to let negative just run roughshod and do what it wants, and we just kind of accept it because that's life. We're going to push back. 
and we're going to enforce these rules and we're not going to allow that anymore. So that was the change and it did make a change here in our physical reality, but nobody of course would notice because this is a policy change at a, at a very high level of things. What happens on day-to-day -day streets is, is not noticeable. So it's not like they came in and, and manipulated things and you know moved people around on a chart. It's not like uh, these are gods playing chess with the people. It's just that what was tolerated and what could be gotten by with uh, changed. And negative sides suddenly had a lot tougher going. They couldn't just do the things they were doing, which was creating more chaos and, and more negativity and more fear. Uh, that, was, uh, that was not eliminated, but it was uh, toned down a whole lot. And then it was a struggle to move things the other way. And we've been struggling. And again, we're talking about, what, um, you know, through two or three decades? So it's, you know, that struggle's ongoing. And we're at a part that's a little further back than we could have been. But uh, anyway, that's, that's what happened. And yes, it does affect what happens here. Not directly. Nobody's mind has changed or picked up and moved a piece from here to there. But just indirectly... Uh, by the fact that negativity did not have a carte blanche like it had before. Is that, um, uh, I'm going to reference the Explorer files from the Monroe Institute. Mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in some of those, they were talking about uh, major earth changes in the, I think in the late 80s, yeah. it was due to hit or something. And uh, I know some other channelers had from that time had talked about you know, big changes coming, earthquakes, volcanoes, and is that part of that policy change, yeah, or is that, that something different? Yeah, that policy change probably did affect some of that, uh, but I, you know, there was a couple of things going on there. One, um, you know, those those things, those uh, those big earthquakes and whatever. Of course, that's all in the future probability. Oh, and right. the future probability was looking like it was more probable at that time. Now, as people report that, then they get other people worrying about it. And the more people worry about it and post things about how these big earthquakes are you know, coming soon and so on, more people worry about it, and you have more negative intent. So they tend to be um, you know, self-reinforcing is is part of the problem. And then lots of people start seeing um, these future probabilities of getting worse and worse. But much of it isn't necessarily just that the crust was coming under the pressures that it couldn't stand as it was being pushed up by intent. You see? Now things that are pushed up by intent can, can also dissipate very quickly. Things that are just basically rule set driven, they don't change much one way or the other. The rule set's just got a lot of rules, and if it works out that it's time for a major slip between the plates, then according to the rule set, then that's kind of, you know, you can, you can push that a little bit, but the rule set's only going to bend so much. So this, this idea of the terrible things happening, a lot of that was puffed up by all the fear that was being poured into it. And yes, somewhere in the probably after that time, that was mainly in um, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, you were getting a lot of that uh, 
kind of, of uh, images of disasters that were, that were going to happen, that were probable. And then by the time we got into the mid-90s, where this change I'm talking about probably took place, um, those probabilities disappeared. And part of it was due to that change. Yeah, probably, because the place got a little less rowdy and a little kinder and gentler. And uh, partly because the change in the, in the philosophy of management made it less likely for those things to, to occur because it gave more higher probability of positive things happening than than lower than and lowered the probability of negative things happening. So yes, it is all integrated together, but in a in a loose way. I wouldn't, you know. Again, we're not seeing that pieces are not being moved around on the board. So it's not something you can point to and say, ah, see this thing. You know, that's because of that. It's not quite like that. It's at a much higher level than it, and the effects actually trickle down over decades. Oh, well, God, I feel like my question is going to lead into just a whole other area. Um, they usually do. Huh? I know. Um, well, one of the things that, you know, Mike and I were talking about before we got on the phone, we really haven't had a chance to even get the footage out uh, that we took back in 2008 that we have, you know, on film about the ability to be able to heal and some of the stories that you shared with us Um and so like going into the whole topic of being able to use your consciousness and, um, that, that ability of love and trying to help others and using that to physically be able to help and heal somebody, then that also ties into a little bit of what you were talking about with the non-physical and some of the rules that kind of play out. And I know that we've also discussed that, you know, sometimes people will, you know, come to you or ask you to look in on things or to check on in this person. And, you know, do you have permission to alter that probability of helping that person to heal and how some people, maybe that really is a part of their path and you really can't change the probability of it because that's what they were supposed to kind of learn and experience in this life packet. So, you know, I was just thinking that the whole topic of, you know, healings and, um, some of the stories that you've shared with us that we do have on film, but it's never actually made it to one of the films yet. Cause we were going to specifically try to create one on healing itself and share them. But, you know, that's just another topic of conversation to go into how to use the consciousness to be able to heal, okay. heal, heal self and others. Okay. I can talk a little bit about that. If you like, uh, the, the healing with the mind, uh, is, is uh, uh, is able to happen because of this idea that intent modifies future probability. So when you heal someone, you're just modifying the future, the probability of what happens next. So you're increasing the probability that that person will get well or will heal, and decreasing the probability that they will get sicker or you know get worse. That things will come out differently now. That's done, you know, we, we talk about mental healing. Well, that's kind of, uh, you know, one of those woo-woo t- topics perhaps for a lot of people. But mental healing is done all the time and it's recognized even in our legal system. It's called the placebo effect. The placebo effect is that if, if you uh, tell somebody that um, they're going to get better and convince them that that's a fact, you will change their attitude toward the illness. You'll make them feel more positive about it because they feel like they're going to get better now and actually 
that will help them get better. It doesn't just make them think that they're better, but it really helps them get better. So they do this in studies with control groups, and the control, one control group, uh, say, is given a, a, a little white pill, and, and um, they're not told anything. And then there's the group that's given the, the same little white pill, and they're told, you know, all these people, say, have liver, liver problems. And uh, the other group's told that this, is, this little white pill is uh, just magic. It's uh, the greatest research, and all the people that have taken it have gotten better. And you give them a, a big positive story about the pill and how likely they are to get better now that they're taking it. And you'll find that somewhere between 30 and 40% of the people, their livers get better when they take the pill. Whereas in the control group, they don't. You see, it's a, it's a statistically significant difference between the two groups. That's the placebo effect. In fact, it's part of our law because you can't market a drug unless you can show that it has more effectiveness than just the placebo effect. In other words, your medicine has to have a higher rate of effectiveness than just telling somebody that the medicine's good. Uh, giving them a, a sugar pill and telling them that it's good medicine. Your, your, your actual medicine has to do better than that. And interesting enough, interestingly enough, the placebo effect is getting harder and harder to beat here in, uh, in our culture. Uh, drug companies are going offshore. They're going to other, uh, other cultures, other places, in order to test their drugs because it's getting a, that the placebo effect uh, isn't... Uh, is getting a harder and harder thing for them to deal with. Anyway, the placebo effect is mental healing. It's the mind, it's the intent changing health. And it's not, again, it's not that it's just making people think they're better. It actually, statistically, compared to a controlled group, makes people heal better than they would if you didn't have that positive intent going. So the ability to heal with mind is, is not a woo-woo item. It's a solid piece of science that's in our legal system that uh, that happens. So now if you, if you learn and practice to heal with your mind, you can get a lot more effective at it than just the, 20, or just the 30 to 40% that you get with, a, with an untrained person. Now the patient who just feels better and more positive about their outlook, um, you'll do a lot better and be more effective. So healing with your mind is modifying future probability and there's some responsibility that comes with that. You can modify that future probability whether it's good for that person or not. It's not that you can't. Um, well, we'll talk in, in theoretical terms. If you're a very strong healer, then you can override somebody else's free will. But it's not a good thing to do. That's meddling in their life. That's uh, pushing them around, if you will. A lot of times, illness is a necessary part of the process that the person's in. If a person is very negative and a person has a lot of fear, they will, they will uh, express that fear physically and to the point that it will make them ill. And now that illness is feedback to them for the way they, for the way they are, for their attitudes. You take that illness away, and you're just enabling their bad attitudes, you see? And that's not necessarily a good thing. You don't want to be an enabler of dysfunctionality. Um, in the big picture, that's not being helpful. 
So in those cases, you need to just let it go. Or that may be that their, their death or whatever is part of a pre-planned arrangement that creates learning situations for somebody else. So there may be a lot of things going on there that you don't necessarily uh, recognize if you just look at the physical situation. And when you're asked to heal that person, overriding their free will and their lessons is just a bad thing to do. It's not, it's not helpful to them. It looks like it's helpful. It's making them healthier, but that's not in the big picture something that you should do. So in the little, uh, for most people, when they just learn to heal, if they're not really very strong at it, you probably won't hurt anybody. You probably don't have to worry too much about that because you're just not that strong that you're going to force your will on other people. The person that has the most power in affecting their body is the, is the consciousness uh, you know, that's, that's running that body. It's the, it's the uh, consciousness running that particular avatar. They have the biggest uh, uh, potential power of modifying that body than outsiders do. So if they really want to be ill, if they really want to die, then you may force one illness away and they'll just replace it with another. And if you force that one away, they might uh, get run over by a truck. You know, It will happen anyway because your power is small compared to their power. So I would say that it's probably 80% of the people who are healing with their mind, particularly those beginners, they're probably not that strong that they're going to bully other people very much. It's like they maybe want to be a bully, but they're just a little, they're just a little kid on the playground, you know, and little kids just, just can't bully uh, uh, people very well. Now, if you're, if you're stronger than that and you can make a significant difference and you can bully people, you're also aware enough to know when you shouldn't heal someone um, as opposed to when you should. So that knowledge comes with experience and with ability. So that kind of takes care of itself. If you don't have that experience and you can't tell whether you should or not, well, you're probably not that strong to make a big difference anyway. And if you can really make a big difference and could do something that would be harmful, then you probably are aware enough to know whether it's something good to do or, or not good to do. So that's, that's kind of the idea with healing. It's something that everybody can do. It's, uh, it has to do with modifying the future reality within the constraints of uncertainty. Okay, that's, let me give you an example. If uh, somebody says, I have this lump under my skin and uh, I've got a, you know, next month I'm going to go see a doctor, they're going to do a biopsy. Well, at that point, there's a lot of uncertainty as to what that lump under their skin could be. It could just be, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, anything that's, that's benign. It could be something that's of no problem whatsoever. Lumps happen sometimes. Or it could be cancer. Or it could be a very uh, um, vicious kind of cancer, a very fast-growing cancer. Or it could be a very slow-growing one that's located just in that lump and can be easily removed. There's all sorts of possibilities of what that lump might be, which creates a lot of uncertainty about what it is. Within that uncertainty, you have an ability to modify future probability, okay? but only within that uncertainty. Now, the month has gone by. The person 
has gone to the uh, doctor. They've done a biopsy. It comes out that it's, a, it's cancer. So he goes to another surgeon uh, who also does a biopsy to get a second opinion, and that turns out to be cancer. And the cancer turns out to be, uh, you know, a, uh, a fairly aggressive one. And you have all that, and now they come to you and tell you, oh, I've got this cancer here and under my skin. Can you help me? Well, now you can modify probable, the probable future within the bounds of the uncertainty of that problem. You see, now there's a lot less uncertainty, and it's a lot more difficult to do much. So if you're a kind of a weak or mediocre healer, then you're kind of up against the wall. It's kind of hard to deal with that. If you're a very strong healer, you still may be able to affect it because you can move more probability than a weaker healer, but it's harder. It's going to take more effort and more work because you have to overcome a lot of probability. In other words, the probability that this is cancer, now with two biopsies it says it is, is a very high probability. And for you to work that high probability down to something much smaller takes a lot of work. So it's that kind of things. Not that it can't be done. And because the body is so unknown into how the body works, we're just scratching the surface with our medical science. And because some people do have spontaneous remissions from cancer and weird things happen all the time in biology and in medicine, then that gives you some uncertainty, again, that you can deal with. Even though you've had the two biopsies, uh, weird things do happen sometimes, but they're less probable. There's still less uncertainty there, you see, uh, than before. So that's kind of the, the rules around healing and some of the things you have to be concerned with. You don't want to override somebody else's free will decisions. That's not on their learning path, even if they ask you to do so because they, on the surface, want to get well. Yet they, underneath, may be creating this illness. So you have to you have to uh, know when to, when to heal and when to let it be and how much you can do. You may just want to give a person a lot of energy that makes them uh, feel better or give them less pain or let them use that energy however they will as opposed to you using it according to your own will. That way you give them something to work with without actually manipulating their situation. So there's ways to still help people without uh, overriding their free will. Right. Yeah. Did I, did I get what you wanted yeah. there? Yeah, exactly. And I remember, okay. you know, I consulted you um, probably last year on a case that I was working on of a, you know, a pretty good friend of mine from high school and she was diagnosed with cancer. It was colon cancer and went to liver and, you know, she was my age. And I remember, you know, she asked for Reiki, you know, quote unquote Reiki mm -hmm. and healing session. So I was a part of her, you know, treatment plan for about two years that she survived it. But I remember, you know, I just kind of felt stuck because I didn't quite know what my role was and I could feel that the healings were helping her in a way, but I could see that it really wasn't curing the cancer or that, you know, it wasn't really making her that better. And when I think about that ripple effect of, you know, how many other people were affected by this because we, you know, came from a small town, a small community, so many fundraisers, so many people praying for her, caring for her, um, supporting her. And of course, you know, she ended up dying, but to also think about how that one person was able to reach so many people and what her 
story, what her struggle with the cancer was, and then with her death and how many people it impacted and looking at that ripple effect. And I remember in one of the emails that you had sent me that, you know, the bigger thing for me is, you know, me getting something out of that experience and what did it teach me? And a lot, you know, personally for me kind of came out of that, of that experience just from a healing perspective, from a friend perspective, from an individual being the same age and seeing somebody die at that age and, you know, what that did for me and looking at life in itself. So, um, you had mentioned something a little bit earlier about that impact and how it can, you know, affect so many people, which made me think about a near death experience, uh, a woman that shared her near death experience on YouTube that I had watched. And, uh, before she came back, she had said that she was shown not only how her life and things that she did in her life affected people, you know, two, three out, but like 35 times out and Mm -hmm. being in the physical, she had no concept of that. Or, you know, we, sometimes we're not even privy to, you know, how we can impact on X amount of levels. But, um, but yeah, I mean the whole, the whole thing that you just talked about and the healing thing, um, you know, when we had kind of worked together on this, it was pretty much known that, that she was going to die. There wasn't a whole lot that I could do to manipulate the situation, except that I knew that those sessions were just bringing her comfort and easing her pain a little bit more. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that definitely, um, answered my question. And I know that we're kind of coming close to the end here. So Mike, is there anything else that, um, you wanted to do to just kind of wrap up our interview? No, I just, uh, I just want to say thanks again for, you know, talking with us and, uh, we, we got to have you back on cause we got tons more questions and I'm sure <laughs> people hearing this will probably want to send in their own questions as well. And yeah. And I noticed in the, in a little uh, email that that you sent me about the setting when we set this up, you said, "Well, maybe we'll talk about your new book." Oh uh, yeah, I, I see. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I know. We didn't. We didn't, even, we didn't get there. So yeah, there's. That is the way it always is. No matter how much time we take, even if we sat here for five hours, there'd be lots of things by the end of it that uh, we would uh, like to talk about it. So yeah, just make it a series, and uh, we can. You know, we'll we'll do it however it works best for you guys. I know uh, it was a few months ago you had work being done on your website. Is that? I did. It's done now. So it's my done. website, my website's probably at about ninety percent. It uh, it's up and it's working. Okay. And that's a big improvement just by <laughs> itself. Uh, there's some details with it that uh, aren't quite fixed yet, and uh, those are those are getting fixed slowly as we go. But uh, yes, I do have a website, and it's it actually works. And it still has the uh, uh, the famous bulletin boards on there, right? The bulletin boards. Oh, uh, the, the forum. The forum. That's the forum. Yeah, you can go to the forum. Yeah, that forum is a is an ongoing thing, and there are literally many thousands of of uh, posts. I I myself have you know I don't know how many thousand, probably more than a thousand posts there. Plus, a lot of other very knowledgeable people have posted things there. So there's a there's a, a gold mine of nuggets. You just have to dig them out. It's uh, I suggest that people with questions uh, go to the forum first, because that's a that's a that's the place that you can most easily get get your answer. I'm hard to get hold of because I get so much to do that getting hold of me for an answer in email or on a on a uh, you know, on the internet is is a lot harder than getting an answer out of the forum. 
Yeah, I remember. Uh, I have actually. I haven't been on the forum in uh, probably a few years, but I remember the uh, being able to go on there and uh, seeing that you did have people helping you out, answering questions mm -hmm. uh, that knew your material very well, and they yes. were very friendly, and you know, they pointed people in the right direction. I thought that was very nice. Yeah, yeah, it's a good it's a good place to go with questions. Yeah, thanks so much for your time. We know you're a busy man, and um, you know we love sitting down and talking with you. So thank you so much. You're quite welcome. I enjoy it. It goes out, and people learn. That's that's good. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on Amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at Vimeo.com, GuyMTV.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at thepastseries.com or send us a tweet at thepastseries. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show. 